Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay visits with Janine Sledham. Janine is a longtime member of the process movement and a member of the advisory board at the Cobb Institute. She's a theologian by training and an academic publisher whose primary interests are process relational and transdisciplinary thought. She's currently the publisher of Process Century Press and series editor of the Toward Ecological Civilization, Theological Explorations, and Transdisciplinary Studies series. She's been an adjunct professor at Claremont School of Theology and United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. An ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, Janine has served churches in California and Minnesota, and she's a former director of Process and Faith, an organization that focuses on process theology and church life. Her liturgies have been used in churches throughout the United States and Canada. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Humanities from McAllister College, an MDiv from United Seminary of the Twin Cities, and a PhD in Philosophy of Religion and Theology from Claremont Graduate University. She lives and works on the banks of the Mississippi River near Minneapolis, Minnesota, with her husband, John. So, Janine, it's so good to be with you today in this conversation and process. I've admired you for a long time, and I think that you have a lot of wisdom with regard to the relationship between process theology and, and, and life in general, but Christianity in particular, and local congregational life in particular. So I hope we can talk about that today. To get started, can you tell me and all of us just a little bit about how you discovered process theology and what it meant to you? Sure. Uh, first, I want to say thank you for inviting me to do this. It's my pleasure. Um, I started in seminary in the mid-80s, and there was a uh, uh, a class that was an intro class that was to in, we were supposed to um, uh, getting introduced to a whole bunch of things and, and was taught by three different professors and one of them had studied at Chicago his name was Don White and he in his section included a unit on process theology and he had us read Marjorie Suhaki's God Christ Church. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction. Now it was not a whiz bang wow at that moment. It was just, this is interesting, I like it. Um, but as time went on in my seminary career, I had one prof after another um, accept a paper from me and then say, you think like a process theologian. And it happened so often I started to get exasperated and thought I should probably figure out something more about what's going on here. And um, after I graduated that summer, there was a remarkable thing. There was a group of um, Northern Minnesota Lutheran ministers who were up in the boonies and they were hungry for theological engagement. So they got together and they would every year they would invite a theologian to join them up at um, a Rainy Lake Resort. This is like International Falls border with Canada way up north. And um, then they would let people know if, if this is what we're doing this year if you want to join us. Well, that summer they chose John Cobb 
And one of those professors of mine who kept saying, you think like a process theologian, invited, said, why don't you come? So um, I did. And it was four days um, in a beautiful setting with John Cobb, who would come in in the morning with a half a sheet of paper and a couple of lines written on it. And anybody knows John knows how this works. And then he would talk for a couple of hours. And then he would come back in the afternoon. And I don't know if it was a different half sheet or not, but he would just go forth again. And it was so fascinating. I just said, okay, this, this is it. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to find out more about this. Um, by that time, however, the graduate school um, selection had already taken place. So I, I called Claremont and said, do you do mid-year starts? And they said, sure. And so I applied for the uh, starting in January 2000 with um, uh, the Claremont Graduate University. And my husband and I got in the car, drove across the country, and we arrived in Claremont, in Claremont on Epiphany. And that just seemed, there I was on Epiphany on uh, the start of the new century. And if there was ever a moment ripe for transformation, that was it. So then I studied with, um, um, with Marjorie and Suhaki and uh, got involved. She got me into process and faith and everything mm. off from there. Well, um, can you, have you thought about how you thought when they said you think like a process theologian, uh, what did they notice in you? Was it your thinking about God, about life, about church? Uh, how did you think? Well, sounded process to people. That's a good question. I think that I was, it was the connectedness and the, um, I did not, like one of the papers that I wrote was um, arguing against the exceptionalism, a crystal mm. exceptionalism. It's just that the, it's more spread out among all of us. And um, it, so it was, yeah, nature of God and some of those, um, the, the doctrines as not once upon a time, but ongoing and unfolding. Um, so that was, I'm pretty sure that was it. But I, by now, I'm not really quite sure what it would have sure. been. We know some people uh, get interested in the process understanding of God out of questions concerning evil, but, but actually some from different paths. Were you drawn to the process understanding of God and, and what attracted you? I think um, I had a fraught childhood with lots of conversations with God, multiple, all day long, outside, always outside. And um, I, as a, um, in early childhood, I felt quite close to God. And then as time went on, I did not. And the idea of an omnipresent God was very powerful for me. And it was helpful in terms of um, uh, jettisoning some old ideas about what Christianity was. I'd been away from the church for 25 years. I left the day after I was confirmed and didn't come back until, um, until I was 35. And then it was from there that things led to seminary and then um, and then to the graduate program. But all of that was part of um, an, an awakening of sorts. I was very much into Jungian psychology, but I kept on feeling at a certain point that Jungian psychology took me so far, if it was a house, took me up to the, um, the, the roof of the next to last floor. And I kept on thinking there's a whole floor above this. 
And um, Jungian psychology is not going to get me there. And what did get me there was um, some uh, recovery of my Christian faith, and then definitely with a process understanding of God. Can you say a little bit about what took you away from the Christian faith? Were there, yeah, were there aspects of Christianity that were simply uh, wrongheaded or not interesting to you? Or was it the church per se rather than Christianity? What, what, why did you leave? Well, one of the things that drove me nuts back then was the doctrine of atonement. I was mm. like, it is just poor psychology, says I to my 13, 14 year old self, um, that, uh, that people are not accountable for what they do or there aren't consequences. This, this notion of somebody dying for me um, and then absolving me of everything was, uh, I just thought it was um, bad psychology for one thing. Um, now I have a, a lot, I mean, uh, over the years, I've come to a lot of different places about it, but interestingly, I did write my dissertation on atonement. So it was something that carried me all the way through. And when I read um, Kant's um, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone and saw the, and how he was morally affronted by the doctrine of atonement, I just thought, oh, gosh, they've been thinking this for a long time. <laughs> this, this, there's a whole trajectory within Christianity that covers this. Were you... Um... Did you ever think of God in highly authoritarian terms as omnipotent, could do anything God wants to do and just chooses otherwise? Was that image of God sometimes called, you know, the monarch in the sky or the bully in the sky, the king, the king on the throne? Was that ever part of your imagination? Um, I, I, I was brought up Lutheran, so there was a bit of that in my early childhood, but, um, but then I, I I, I did not, I abandoned that. I thought that was foolish. And especially because I felt the presence of God um, in, in my backyard, there was water back there and there were willows and I wandered, I rode and rode my little rowboat and I ice skated in the winter and I was outside all of the time. And that was where I felt the presence of God. So it was kind of a God in creation um, image that predominated rather than the, the white bearded guy in the sky. But I do think that I had a touch of that gotcha God that stuck with me, um, that that God would be, you know, watching and um, um, and when I did something wrong, it would be a ha ha gotcha. Um, but but not that was a pretty minor strain. So most of it was I felt I found God on my own in nature, and the doctrines of the church were just getting in the way. I see. I see. And nature's always been an important part of of your um, spiritual sensibility. I, yes. Is that, is that correct? Is, has it been, by the way, has it been water, landscapes, mountains, you name it, plants, animals? What 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 dimensions of the natural world have have um, have shaped your your heart and life? Water. Water. <laughs> Water, because of, I mean, I called it a lake in my backyard. It was a pond, but <laughs> I called it a, a lake. And when years later, I ran across that translation um, of Dante's Inferno, Inferno, where he talks a bit midway in the course of our life. And he's talking in that prologue about the lake of the heart. And I said, lake of the heart. And I was so there. It was like, 
these are the words that describe what I feel when I, it was fabulous. That's my favorite. Oh, that's job. beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there's a sense in which maybe the, the consequent nature of God and, and process thought that has a kind of wideness that includes everything. So it's kind of like a lake of the universe corresponding to the lake in your heart. Yeah. Uh, for, for people like John Cobb and others, the notion of God as eternal companion is, is very important. Shares in the suffering, shares in the joys. Huh? Uh, sometimes when people find God in nature, you know, that's a little different from God as in some sense, other than us as an eternal companion, were both important to you or was it more the nature side or, or, or not? Well, no, it was obviously the nature side. Um, but I was, so I definitely found God in nature, but the, um, um, there was, as I said, I had a fraught relationship with God at a certain point. And, and I thought that um, I, I was having difficulty um, thinking that um, I, there were, I, I thought God, it's, I thought I accepted the notion that God is love. I just thought that God didn't love me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So I had to come through some, some uh, uh, thorny woods um, to get to where I did. Yeah. Well, I think you're not alone in that. So I think more than a few people have that sense. And so, um, so here you are, or there you were, and you discovered process theology, and it spoke to your lake in the heart side and mm-hmm. the someone who loves you side. Um, and then I think you try to take that into congregational life. Is that correct? I mean, you know, a lot of people say, now this process theology, is it preachable? Uh, did you find it preachable? Oh my gosh, it is so preachable. I mean, think about the themes. Um, the, the nature of uh, God is God's presence, uh, omnipresence. And then in the sense of every moment, God is present with us every moment. Um, the future is open. There, there's always a new beginning, always a new possibility. So you preach hope. Um, and then you preach um, the interconnectedness of all things and the fact that what we do matters. I mean, I don't say it goes into the consequent nature of God. I just say that God feels and receives everything that we do think, say, and that that becomes part of God. So what we do utterly matters. But it also means that it's not up to any one person to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. Um, the, the, the burden is shared. So like, for example, when I preach climate change, it's like, yeah, it's up to all of us. But um, it's not up to any one person. God is working creatively throughout the world with all kinds of people and with nature itself. And that's been an important point for me because that's also a source of hope because sometimes I can get pretty down on humanity, but the notion that God is working through the fungi that are going out through those little tendrils of the trees and they're teaching each other, um, brother, this is what's happening in the world where we are now. So be careful, develop these, you know, uh, uh, chemical means to prepare so that as you move north and we die out, you're ready. I mean, all of that stuff that we're learning about trees is like God is in nature and nature is really trying to help us with uh, the whole issue of climate change. So there's so much there. Um, Then God um, um, 
um, this is then it becomes very biblical because you can find a, a process hermeneutic in the Bible and looking at at power and the two ways the God of uh, there's Caesar or there's God or there um, there um, in uh, Ezekiel there are the two ways to be a king and there's there's all of that um, uh, information about power and then about um, um, transformation. I, mean, I think that transformation was another huge reason why I was attracted to process and why it became incorporated into my ministry is that we are all in need of transformation and the promise of it is powerful. That nothing is, well, it's not even over when it's over because we go into the consequent nature of God and therefore, uh, but it, it, there's, there's that sense of um, of um, always another possibility, always a new beginning. And we are in this together and God is in it with us. Lots uh, of people. Janine, did, did, did Jesus or Christ uh, play an, an important role in your preaching uh, and your thought? Or, or by contrast, you know, was it more God-centered and, and Christ a little ancillary to the focus on God? Where did Christ fit in for you in your ministry and or your life? Either one. An excellent uh, question, because, yes, I did start more with God. And so I was more comfortable preaching from the Hebrew scriptures than from the New mm -hmm. Testament. But there are also so many things in the New Testament that are... Um, well, I'm, I got ahead of myself. I, I, I went right to Jesus and skipped over the Christ part of your question. Um, I think that the I, I like the way John Cobb talks about Christ as the principle of creative transformation. So that is the activity of that that names that activity, or at least I should say more accurately, it names it for Christians, the Christians who are who are looking at the notion of Christ. Um, the, um, I was not always comfortable preaching um, uh, Lent. I often would use the uh, Hebrew scriptures, but I think that the part of the journey of, um, of Jesus in that last week is it's, it's, very, um, it's a very um, deep structure to that story. Because you start with Palm Sunday, and there's the sense that this is how it's supposed to be. Everybody's happy and cheering. And um, so this is the image of how it is supposed to be. And then you get to um, Thursday, and there's that sense of community, but um, a heaviness that's hanging over it. Um, and, and betrayal, you get Friday um, and the, the crucifixion. And then Saturday, which Protestants gloss over, which I think is a mistake. Because I think an awful lot of us feel the sense of crucifixion, but haven't gotten to Easter yet. There's a real um, point at which Holy Saturday is a part of a lot of people's felt experience. Um, they can't get out of the, um, the pain and the suffering and the, or the addiction or you know, choose something that is overpowering like that. And then Easter is the promise that, yes, there is another side. It's like you come to the cross and then you get to the other side of the cross. And that is where there is something other than that pain and suffering. There's transformation 
and the possibility of new life. So I, I don't like the word resurrection. I don't use it very often, but I use the word transformation because I believe in that utterly, and that is powerfully at work in that Easter story and Easter week transformation. That I hang my hat on. And on that Saturday, that's a, is that a kind of time when you're hoping for transformation, awaiting transformation? You know, the, the, the risen Christ has not yet appeared on Holy Saturday. And so it's, kind, it's almost like Advent in a way. But it's no, but the way I experienced it and the way, and, and the way I think uh, I've talked with people who have is mm. that there's, there's no hope. You're in, in, it hasn't happened yet. Um, mm -hmm. So there's not the sense that I'm waiting for something to happen. I'm I'm stuck. I mean, the the what the the tradition says Jesus went down at the harrowing of hell. You know, brought up all of the righteous people. Um, but there is a sense of being in hell and not not seeing a way out. Uh, so I think that Saturday is a a, a powerful. Thing that affects um, maybe not, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people. Yeah. I think um, if Good Friday is the pain, is Saturday a continuation of that pain or is it a different experience? Can you say a little bit more about mm -hmm. the relationship of the Saturday to the Friday? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the sense of um, there still is a lot of pain, but it is now living with it as a fact without any hope of recovery. So think of people who have experienced trauma, um, uh, the moral injury of war or addiction. Uh, it's like you're, you're in it. And um, so there's some sense of the continuation of the suffering and pain, but there's also a sense of you've crossed that border into I, into the actuality of the experience and you can't get out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's, I, I understand. And that's, well, with the addict, with the person suffering from an addiction, they, they can enter into a hole mm -hmm. from which they think there's no escape whatsoever. Mm -hmm. and, and that sounds like the Saturday experience. Yeah, or the or recovery from trauma, mm -hmm. uh, so that those and and the experience of PTSD, where you're constantly you are you reliving and re-experiencing, you're in a loop and you can't get out. Yeah. Well, I do say thank God for Easter. Yeah, me too. You know, thank God for treat for creative transformation, just just as you're saying it. Now, Janine, um, I can see how much this means to you. It's part of the very fabric of your yeah. mind and heart and life. Now, uh, how about your congregants? Um, I'm sure your preaching was terribly effective. Uh, were there other ways that you tried to introduce a process orientation apart from, from preaching? Uh, liturgy, music, uh, whatever. If you could say a word about that. But it, it's, um, I thought of a worship service as, as through composed, or I think of it as through composed. So, it be, so the music is a really important part of it, and that's terribly important because... Nothing reinforces classical theology more than our traditional hymns. And so trying to find new hymns and uh, global hymns is some way, sometimes a way of doing that. 
Um, and there are more hymn writers now who are doing, uh, like Marty Haugen, who are doing really good things. But uh, liturgy is very important. And I, if I choose a text, I don't choose it and not talk on it. Um, so if I'm only going to preach on one text, we will only read one text. So I don't feel obligated to read a Hebrew scripture, a, a gospel, a letter, because um, I don't want to leave something untouched. If I and so at any rate, so um, uh, but if there's a way to tie them together, then I'll read them. All, I'll you know I'll, I'll read more. But um, but the liturgy is very important to me, and uh, there it's language like. Um, uh, again, we're opening ourselves. We're not asking God to come to us. That's a simple thing, but it's it's huge. If you keep on saying, you know, come to me, um, please, um, you know, the, you're, you're, you're opening yourself up instead to the presence of God. You trust that God is already there. So it's a very different way to speak a liturgy or to pray. You, you, you start with the assumption that God is, is with us. And um, and all of us, <laughs> and and um, the and then I'll, I use a lot of as you might you would not be surprised given what I've said about nature and, and climate change, lots of creation um, language in in the liturgies. Um, I have strong feelings about a liturgical language that is not um, jarringly modern, and yet not. Um, precious and old you know ancient the i don't use the or thou i know some people who have done done taken on that practice but um the so the language has to be has to be of a try to find of a more universal nature although i know i'm in trouble saying that because there is you know the people come from so many different um places but now, I, how about the musical side how about the musical side? Um, apart from the words, uh, the melodies, the rhythms, you know, the sonic dimension of, of a liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, have you thought about that? Is, is that important in a process liturgy? That, it's um, yeah. Any, it, thought, any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I like the, the opening hymn to be something like a gathering one that calls us in and it really focuses more on God. It says things start with God. So here's where we are. Um, and, and we um, are opening ourselves to God's presence and trusting that God is already there and often finding it in nature. So there's some great God is creator hymns. Um, the middle hymn um, is the more contemplative response to the sermon. So, and that's where um, uh, you know, I have my favorites, and one of them is that we belong to God, we belong to God. I'm guessing you know that one. And um, so, but that it's that um, that kind of place that centers us now with um, with with the, that word, that preached word. And then the final hymn, because sometimes I get, I mean, I I can get, um, I can preach a prophetic sermon and well uh, there's always a pivot to hope always you always pivot to hope but i can put it out there in a way that is prophetic but always an uplift at the end so that there's um the 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 rhythm um the tempo the words that are aren't we glad we came and we're going to walk out of this place feeling good um, it's not unlike the Whitehead's rhythm of um, romance, 
precision and um, generalization. yeah generalization because you start so it's like with, like with a sermon you start with a story the middle part is the exegesis and then the final part is how are you going to apply this or in other words go go ye and do likewise and the the music follows the same kind of pattern so there's uh, there's that um, this is this we we are in God's world. You know, the but the middle is the that that is the reflective exegetical piece. But it's always the the place where you take it prayerfully into yourself, and then um, you have to leave feeling good. And so um, something like um, De Colores as a final hymn, or my, um, not surprisingly, if you know it, one of my very favorite hymns is the Lead Us from Death to Life. Because it's all about that's it's in the UCC hymnal. I'm sure it's other places as well. It's based on the Hindu uh, Hindu prayer, and it's all about transformation. Which reminds me, that's the other theme that you can use a lot of in process, and and that is the and using using um, the New Testament. That's the great reversal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Janine, uh, one thing that you have really done a lot of is try to encourage other clergy and other congregations to find ways of using uh, a process outlook um, as they are able and so inclined. Mm -hmm. And that takes me then to the process and faith movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a story there to be told and it's, it's not complete, but you were pretty close to the dawn of creation. Um, on, on that on that particular story, would you tell us this a little bit of the story of process and faith? Yeah. That, or, that, that movement, that organization. It began uh, actually. It was I, I was a latecomer, I think, in some ways. Um, that the there were the Center for Process Studies had been established, um, and it was about process thought and every other thing under the sun, right? You know, so, but there were a group of clergy who got together and say, you know, this is located at the Claremont School of Theology. Perhaps we should have some part of this focus specifically on um, theology and be of assistance to specifically Christian church mm-hmm. le- faith leaders. And um, so the, they formed process and faith. And it um, when I came, um, there was... Uh, I inherited something that uh, what had been established was there was an early adapter for the, for, so there was a website um, and the, um, it was the, the things that I think were the, the best things that I inherited were the, from, there was uh, the creative transportation, creative, tra- I'm sorry, creative transformation journal came out quarterly and um which was about practical applications of process thought in various aspects of church. And then um, uh, the process, uh, the process and faith lectionary commentary. So there were specific lectionary um, um, exegetical things that were, were coming from a process perspective. And then the ask Dr. Cobb feature, which was once a month asking Dr. Cobb a question and having it show up online that and, um, and a community of people that were the people who had been involved at the beginning still were. And uh, so I I, I inherited, so to speak, a a wonderful coterie of uh, colleagues that were um, committed to 
to this work. And Marjorie then was appointed the director of Process and Faith. And then she, as time went on, she gave me that title. And we worked very hard at um, um, reaching out to other churches across the country. And um, the I started trying to find more liturgies to put online, but that's, that's a, a place where there's definite need for growth. But it's the whole idea was, no, you're not going to step into the pulpit and talk about the consequent nature of God or perception in the mode of presentational immediacy. You're not going to do that, but you're going to talk about the presence of God in every moment of, of your life and God's encouragement in every moment of your life. I stopped using the word God's will for you and started using the word imagination. This is what God imagines is possible for you. And here's a way forward. So uh, I just, uh, that that stuff, I think I matter. It matters a lot, and I tried to have a hymn contest to address the issue of hymnody, but uh, didn't have a whole lot um, that I could do to develop that one. But I still think that that's one of the most important things that needs to happen um, to with that um, that per, getting that perspective loose. Because every single time you sing, I, it's like the the line was, "You preach a wonderful process sermon, and then." This, the middle hymn and the second verse, there's something that completely undoes everything you said. So very important. So in, in the process of clergy community today, among Christians, mm -hmm. uh, there are some who, who are, for example, uh, Episcopalians. Mm -hmm. And the liturgy, they can't write their liturgies. Mm -hmm. but, but also at some level, they don't want to. Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's a comfort, there's a familiarity, and there's something sacred uh, for them about the inherited liturgy. Now, how they imagine it, you know, what it means, it's kind of like um, being an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> you, you've got the text, but how you interpret it, mm -hmm. uh, it is, is much up to you. But do you think that process theology, I know it can have a place in progressive Protestant Christian circles, where people write their own liturgies and work with the words and create new hymns. How about for those for whom that would not be the path? Can process be integrated into traditional liturgies too? Do you have any thoughts on that? In fact, the, the person who taught me the most about liturgy was Paul Nancaro, an Episcopal mm -hmm. priest in Minnesota, and he's on the East Coast now. And so, and he, he wrote his dissertation on uh, liturgy, but he would talk about liturgy as, um, as an event mm. that you enact. It has a past, a present, and a future. The past, when you say those words, all of the people who have ever said them and all of the circumstances in which they've said them are part of that moment of you speaking those words. And then there is that very present moment of you saying, of speaking them. And then there's the sense of by saying this in a body and in a worship, you are giving it as a community to the future as well. So he did wonderful things. I taught me a lot about liturgy in the sense of a book of common prayer or and a Lutherans don't write a whole lot of liturgies either. Some do and some don't, but um, um and then there were things that he could do. He could, he did, um, he, he um, Paul did like a, a rogation ritual that he, 
um, that he created. And so there, so there are things you can do with it, but I, I like the way he talks about uh, liturgy and he would teach that to his congregation so that uh, you don't just get up there and say it, you talk about it and or, or, or teach it in classes, um, uh, adult faith formation. And so that when the moment comes and you're standing there and you're speaking the words, you are pulling the past present into that moment and consciously contributing it to the future. I love the, the notion of, of liturgy and worship as an event. Mm -hmm. um, that's in a collective event. Mm -hmm. uh, it does occur in the privacy of, of the heart of, an, of the individuals, but mm -hmm. it also occurs together. Mm -hmm. And the togetherness affects the individuals and the other way around. I know, Janine, that uh, in so many circles that you run into and work with, and I'm, I'm a part of those, that a whole lot of people talk about interfaith and multi-faith and the many world religions. And I myself have been a champion of all that. Mm -hmm. But but also, I myself really want to see a continuation of the process movement within Christian congregations yeah. as Christian as Christian. Yeah. And I know that there can be a tension between oh, is it all about interfaith or hey, how about these Christian con congregations? And mm -hmm. uh, for me, the answer is I want both. Mm -hmm. Let there be both. But I, but I think for us, the question is now how to really cultivate that in Christian con congregations that are unapologetically Christian. Of course, they're open to wisdom wherever found. You know, of course, they have a multi-faith consciousness. Of course. Yeah. But, but also, they need to foster and nurture uh, their own local congregation. So do you have any uh, suggestions uh, or dreams? Just put them in terms of dreams as to how that might be resuscitated, what that might look like. If you don't, it's okay. But I think a lot of us are wondering that. Um, I, I do have some feelings about that. First of all, I want to back up and say very white heady and of you to do both and rather than <laughs> or either nor. Um, so or so. Um, um, yeah. One of the things that I think it, I care about is, and I know there's been lots of discussion about this by various groups and over the years, is I think that there has to be a way to identify process thought to keep some kind of way to differentiate it from other progressive kinds of religion. Because you've got, you've got people who are, um, were, had, were part of a faith community, dropped out, um, you know, the who are spiritual but not religious, or but I mean, just don't want to, are not part of a, of church life anymore. And then you have the people who were wounded by the churches because the uh, a tremendous amount of that, unfortunately, has taken place as well. But not that. Then there's this progressive label, and what does that mean? And what does it? I don't know what progressive means when you're talking to somebody in a context where they're where it's you know they they, they are not churchgoers. I don't think it necessarily conveys anything, but the but but when I'm talking to somebody who has either no faith or uh, a wounded faith and don't want any part of it anymore, I start by talking about the nature of God and what do you you know how do you see that or and I um, it's the the, the I've heard a number of process theologians do something like that. It's like, 
what is the God you believe in? And they describe it and you say, well, I don't believe in that God either uh, because you're trying to get the point that it's something different. But I think something that would help us differentiate ourselves so that people know when you're talking about progressive or process theology, you are going to get this. It's kind of like the way some people now in the straight community use LGBTQ um, issues to identify a, pro a progressive church. You know, they're, they're straight, but if they're looking at a church's stance and if that church is... Um, is open and welcoming and affirming, then they'll say, ah, I think that's probably a progressive church and I would be okay there. Uh, but you can still get in that kind of setting and hear a lot of traditional doctrinal language. And one of the things that I do in also in my preaching and liturgy is not use, I mean, it's, I don't use the technical Whiteheadian language, but I don't use the technical doctrinal language either. That's another professional discourse. And there's a way to get um, closer to people with other, without using that kind of language. Um, so a way forward, a way forward. I've, I've beat my head against that wall for a number of years and we've tried lots of different things. And one of the things that, uh, that was actually helpful was when we were a membership program and you had to pay to get the electionary that we had 600 members all across the country. And then there was that period in um, the web, um, uh, uh, the web introduction to the, to all of life. Is, oh no, you have to give it away. You know, then there's, that's that argument of, you make it available to everyone. It's the democratic nature of that. Well, we made it available to everybody. And within two years, we had um, less than 200 members because they could get it for free. They didn't have to pay for it. And um, it, it, it then we, the, the, there, was less, there was less money to, um, to put to things like um, the Process Summer Institute, for example, that I ran for a number of years and David Grant Smith is doing it now. And um, I think those kinds of ways of outreach are good. But the other thing when you said Christ for specifically for Christians is that I would hear people talk about process and faith needing to reach out to other religions. And I didn't disagree with it. But I also knew that 99% of our members were Christian clergy and they were there for a reason. They were looking for something. And at one point I gave a while back, I, I was able to introduce John Cobb to a, a conference of UCC people. And, and in the, the introduction, I, I talked about how um, Cobb was important because it's like every, um, he would give us something so that out of the wreckage of the week, we could step into the pulpit again and preach um, a word of hope. And um, those people are still out there. And there's a lot of wreckage in our weeks. And, we, and um, the, there are some wonderfully creative people out there, but there are others who have spent too much time with um, ailing parishioners and don't have time to do a 
huge exegetical leap into the gospel of, of John or something. You know, it's, it's, to provide those kinds of resources, I think, is terribly important. And to provide them for Christians doesn't mean that you're ignoring other faiths. I did an issue of Creative Transformation that I was very proud of that had written perspectives from different people from so that I had um, I had um, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, and um, and Muslim, and I think that was it. And just just um, and uh, and and it was the Advent issue, I think. And it was just you know talking about the idea of expectation in your faith. And um, anyway, but it was uh, it worked very well. But I realized I don't have the skills or the um, com- the the community reach to do that four times a year. I don't know that many people and I don't have I'm versed in I I mean my degree is in um, historical and constructive theology it's 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 not an interfaith so I know my own limitations and I'm fine with it like you say I'm interested in that but I also am I am um, I care about the progressive church and the challenges that those clergy face yeah uh, I, I do too and and laity laity as well, yeah, very much. Needless to say, I you know uh, my hunch is that f- fresh language and connections with nature, which you already have, um, a recognition of the non-discursive parts of religious life, music. Um, complemented by the discursive part of religious life is really important. Um, There's some ways of being progressive where you just kind of ignore religion. You you ignore God, you know, we don't care about that. We care about justice. Let's go. Yeah. But that, that the soul must be nourished by more, more than that, not less than that, but more than that. So I think that, that your sense of nature and your experiment, with fresh forms of speaking uh, is really important and it's kind of a sign for the future uh, in my view. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm on your side, you know, I, what the future, by the way, I think this is process. What the future holds, we don't know. <laughs> I think there, there, if there, there's one thing that I really think would help um, and that is a robust and content filled website. Um, because that reaches, um, and the, the kind of what zoom has taught us, you can be anywhere and the web had already established that you can, you can get, but it needs, I, I don't have the web skills to do what I envision. And, um, but I do think that I, I have some ways of reaching out to communities and then communities of communities to start getting that rich content. Um, I'm, I, I do feel confident about that and just getting more up there so whether it's reviving the process and faith website although that is kind of a mishmash right now because of um, issues in the past and how how um, how some people were bringing things together Um, but nevertheless the there's there is a way forward and the internet is a piece of it has to be and you don't necessarily go to um, asking people to pay for it again. I think we're, you know, that 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 moment is gone. Um, but the but that but there's a way to um, 
to build that and get the word out. There's so many um, clergy cohorts. I'm I am meeting clergy women in their 30s who are amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, it's 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 very hopeful for me. And they're talking to each other. They've got their own cohorts, and there there mm -hmm. there are ways to. And, and, oh, I want to back up to one other thing, too, about process and faith and about the, uh, the whole thing with process theology. When we would explain to people uh, from the process and faith perspective what we thought was going on with process theology, we would, if people um, liked it at all, they would say one of two things. They would say, well, that just makes sense. And the other one was, oh, you mean there's a name for it? I've always believed that. And that those people are out there. And um, I think that there's, there's process theology can, has a lot to offer. Well, may there, may there emerge that robust website. Yes. I, I think where people can go and learn and take and use in local settings. One thing's clear, if there's that robust website, it will be partly indebted, maybe largely indebted, to Janine Sledham. <laughs> and the energy that you've put into that, um, the passion, the purpose. And uh, so may this be a really big thank you from, from the entire process community. Now, you, you didn't talk about Process Century Press. We're out of time, but folks out there, there's something called Process Century Press, and it's published a lot of good books. And we've been interviewing the editor of that press <laughs> who doesn't do it for very much money, if any money. No. Uh, <laughs> it's a labor of complete love. Um, so uh, kudos to, to, to you and to the press and to Process and Faith in its future. Uh, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. Peace be with you. Take care. Thank you. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.